In a recent church service, I was taken aback during the scripture reading when I heard this line, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. I was surprised because I expected this line in a passage about Lazarus. Instead, this is what the father says to his son when he returns home after squandering his inheritance in the parable of the prodigal son. My son was dead and is alive again. Why does the father say this? I think the answer lies in how many pre-modern cultures understand gift giving. To explain, I'll I'll share a strange folk tale discovered by the Grimm brothers and called the tale of the ungrateful son. Once, A man and his wife were sitting outside the front door with a roast chicken. Then the man saw his old father coming along and quickly took the chicken and hid it, for he begrudged him any of it. The old man came, had a drink, and went away. Now the son was about to put the roast chicken back on the table, but when he reached for it, it had turned into a big toad that jumped in his face and stayed there and didn't go away again. And if anybody tried to take it away, it would give them a poisonous look as if about to jump in their faces so that no one dared touch it. And the ungrateful son had to feed the toad every day. Otherwise it would eat, otherwise it would eat part of his face. And thus, he went ceaselessly hither and yon about in the world. By keeping the meal to himself, the son has stopped the flow of gifts. His greed manifests itself as a toad on his face, and this ostracizes him from his community. By the end, he cuts ties completely and travels, as it says, ceaselessly hither and yon about in the world. Through the son's greed, he has enacted a a sort of self-imposed shunning and becomes dead to his community. Similarly, through the prodigal son's greed and gluttony, he becomes dead to his father. What we are witnessing here is a cardinal property of the gift that many traditional cultures have followed. And that is that whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away again, not kept, end quote. 
This, these two tales are cautionary tales of what happens when people ignore this property and hoard their wealth. Lewis Hyde talks extensively about this in his landmark book, The Gift, which has been much of the inspiration for today's message. This property is essentially the same as our second scripture reading for today. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. We all have a gift, some unusual abundance we have been given. Perhaps this is a talent like public speaking, art, or leadership. Perhaps our gift is a resource like money, land, or a business. Now let go of it, says the passage. Give it away. Don't use your gift to serve yourself. Use it to serve others. Today's reading is a little hard to swallow. That said, I think it's also the only fulfilling option that we have. Recently, I've been in transition. I found the following thought experiment helpful in clarifying the necessity for giving in my life. I imagine two people on their deathbed. One has lived life like the prodigal son, using their gifts to serve themselves only and clutching their possessions to their chest. In their final act, they sign their will and with tears in their eyes say, alas, I have failed. The other was more like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. They valued giving all their life. On their deathbed, they sign their will. And with tears in their eyes, they say, alas, I have succeeded. I have named this first composition that I will share with you, Prodigal Son. It maps out the son's transition away from greed and into something else.
the prodigal son is an unfinished story. Will he revert back to his old ways? Or will he start giving back to the community again? Even when we want to give, we have a roadblock to overcome. And that is, I think, that we live in a finite universe with real scarcity. We realize that the clock on our lives is ticking. We have past regrets to fruitlessly correct and fears about the future to haphazardly manage. How can I give when I barely have enough time, money, and knowledge to solve my own problems? To capture how scarcity makes giving challenging, I'd like to read a selection of Father Greg Boyle's Tattoos on the Heart. Then I'll play on the piano my composition that I've called, I Thought She Was an Interruption. For background, Father Boyle operates an ex-prison rehab center, and he was several minutes late for a baptism already when a woman named Carmen walks into his office. I need help. She launches right in, rash. Oh, she says, I've been to like 50 rehabs. I'm known all over, nationwide. She smiles. Her eyes wander around my office as she studies all the photographs hanging there. She multitasks, and her inspection of the place doesn't derail her stream of conscious rambling. The family will arrive. The baptism is in five minutes. I went to Catholic high school all my life, fact. I I graduated from high school even, fact. Right after graduation is when I started to use heroin. Cameron enters some kind of trance at this point, and her speech slows to deliberating and halting. And I have been trying to stop since the moment I began. Then I watch as Carmen tilts her head back until it meets the wall. She stares at the ceiling, and in an instant, her eyes become these two ponds, water rising to meet their edges, swollen banks spilling over. Then, for the first time, really, she looks at me, straightens, and says, I am a disgrace. Suddenly, her shame meets mine. For when Carmen walked through the door, I had mistaken her for an interruption.
When I see a homeless person holding a sign asking for some spare change, I'm sometimes surprised that I feel fear. Fear because if I give even just $1, I know there's a part of me that will wonder why I haven't already drained my bank account. Because of this, if I do give, I regret that guilt played a role in my giving. As the second scripture passage says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How we become a cheerful, cheerful giver is an unanswered question that I want to leave at the heart of today's message because I don't think I have the wisdom to answer it, and it is such an important question. But I do think that the cheerful giver exists within each of us, just under the surface, waiting to be cultivated. I hope I can inspire the cheerful, cheerful giver in you with this poem by Elliot Martin, who is one of my friends. And after that, I will play my musical interpretation of that poem. So this is uh, Dangerous Business, and the subtitle is Mother Teresa, I Blame You. It is a dangerous business, this falling in love with everyone. Walking the streets, I am liable to stumble, gazing into my beloved's eyes for the very first time. Sitting on a bench in the park, staring into outer space, taking in the presence of the beauty all around me, I'm left vulnerable to forgetting myself. And then, to speak of money, how I want to give it all away, frivolously, like a grandparent, who knows their end is near and that there is no need for repayment after all. 
Living such a life is terribly difficult. Whoever gave me such advice has gotten me into a lot of trouble. But it is also true, having experienced this recklessness, that anything safer now just seems so worthless.
Holocaust survivor Victor Frankl recalls when a prison guard went out of his way to give him a piece of bread, even at great personal risk. He reflects that, quote, it was far more than the small piece of bread that moved me to tears at the time. It was the human something that this man gave me, the word and the look which accompanied the gift. When we give gifts, something much deeper than redistribution of material goods happens. I think it is this human something behind our gifts that leads the massing people to exchange necklaces and arm shells in the South Sea Islands near New Guinea. These gifts pass from household to household in elaborate trips that span hundreds of miles on canoe. Gifts have the ability to hold community close together, even over such a great distance. An example of one gift that I've seen meaningful to multiple churches is the hymn, Nothing is Lost. It was hung, sung in my home congregation when I was young. And it is this memory of beauty that I have before I really had the ability of expressing beauty in words. The opening phrases, the opening phrase, nothing is lost, gained a whole new meaning for me when I learned that the piece was composed as a gift for a mother after her son died of cystic fibrosis at the age of 19. Nothing is lost on the breath of God. Later, someone sang it as part of their sermon here, after Samantha's term as a pastor ended and the East Chestnut Street Church was shaken. In response, I played an arrangement of the hymn during the offertory or special music that followed the sermon. It's my main memory of playing the piece in church, so I was surprised and touched when I was requested to play that piece specifically at Allen's Allen's memorial service. From the death of a young adult to our home congregation, when we use our gifts to serve each other and with the heart of a cheerful giver, They spread warmth in the midst of despair. Gifts become a blessing that flows through the whole community. As D.H. Lawrence puts it, not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. This last piece I've called the wind that blows through us. It explores the vitalizing flow of gift once it enters a community. So this arrangement then is, will flow right into nothing is lost, which is the response to this sermon. So follow my lead. I will give you instructions as we go. 
and I will tell you to come in and, and sing in different ways. Is the number printed in the bulletin? And if not, does someone have the number? 653. So feel free to turn to 653. Thank you. 